passage that we typically look to for this uh, is typically labeled Jesus' triumphal entry, um, and uh, which um, is, a, is really kind of an, an interesting label for heading for those passages because it's, it's kind of uh, a, a mixture of things that the passage of Jesus coming into Jerusalem because on the one part we have a celebration that is due to him and yet it feels ill-timed, right? Because the crucifixion is looming. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But the, um, it was the be- marked the, uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover week. At the end of the week, which we, we know that Jesus would give His life as a perfect sacrifice to ransom humanity from the, his, his own judgment of our sin. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 19 uh, to start off with here this morning. We're going to look at uh, many passages, uh, many of them actually in Luke's Gospel. We're going to start right here. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of, his, of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought, brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, sat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. As Jesus rode in, rode toward Jerusalem on this day, and the disciples greeted him with, with praise, they utter praise that is true and is due to him, but of which they, they really don't comprehend yet. To the crowd at this point, it seems that Jesus' arrival, rather than giving them the hope of eternal life, giving them the hope of a right relationship, restored relationship with their Creator. To the crowd, it seems that Jesus' arrival gave them a hope that maybe, that maybe now was the time where the power and glory of, of their nation would be restored under a new king from heaven. And, but this particular day, they're a little, they're a little early on this one. And Jesus, as He enters 
Jerusalem. One day he will enter as a triumphant king. But on this particular day, it was really marked for Jesus um, by a heaviness of a burden that he was carrying. See, Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. That is, he had set his face to the cross. Luke's gospel actually is uh, really from almost the very beginning, flowing throughout the rest of of the gospel, especially at least to the the crucifixion. Um, Luke's gospel has this kind of um, flow through it that, that is constantly bringing up Jerusalem and a movement toward Jerusalem. That Jesus is, it's like Luke's gospel is, uh, and, and he, he does this just splash throughout, and we're going to take a look at this, but Luke being, being driven along by the, by the Holy Spirit as he records the, the gospel here, is, makes uh, many mentions of a direction that Jesus is going toward Jerusalem. And what's interesting is, is if you were to really break it down and, and get specific about the locations Jesus was actually in and where he was technically going next, you'd find that he wasn't always actually going to end up in Jerusalem next. But what Luke is giving us is, is the picture that, that there's something bigger going on where the life of Jesus, his, his purpose is always moving toward the cross. And so, uh, in fact, there's 32 mentions of Jerusalem, uh, specifically by name in Luke's Gospel. Um, There are other references to Jerusalem in Luke's Gospel, but there are 32 actual mentions of Jerusalem, uh, which is about three times more than the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or John. Um, In fact, if you add Matthew, Mark, and John together, they have about the same number of references to Jerusalem as Luke alone does. And um, we're going to look at some of those. Not all of those are a reference to moving toward Jerusalem, but but just the we we see the importance in Luke's gospel of Jerusalem, and and it's important to understand this because it, it 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 fits with the the whole purpose of Christ. Let's look at, uh, actually, we'll look at Luke's Gospel at the beginning of it, chapter 2, verse 41. While Jesus was still a child. And consider Luke's first mention of, of Jesus in Jerusalem here. In, and how we're going to, Luke is going to wrap up his gospel. So this is the beginning of his gospel here, the front end of it. And he says, now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now you can... You can continue on later and read the full account of that. But Luke places Jesus here uh, as a child going to Jerusalem 
during the week of the Passover. What's interesting is, as we move through the rest of Luke, it sort of leads us to the passage we read previous to this of Luke 19, where Jesus is once again coming into Jerusalem on the week of the Passover. Luke is already at the beginning of his gospel here, dropping, dropping the reminder and the hint that the purpose of Jesus was to come and lay his life down for you and I and for those who would persecute him. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 9. During Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness where Satan was tempting him and he was fasting. Verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Here, during Jesus' temptation, as Satan is tempting him, Jesus is led to the temple in Jerusalem where he's overlooking Jerusalem. And there's two, two, um, two parts to Jesus overlooking Jerusalem here. One, we're going to find that in Luke's Gospel, we have this uh, also a reminder of Jerusalem as sort of being the, the, a representation of his people. That he longs for his people to come to him. And yet they resist. The other part of Jesus looking over Jerusalem is that Jesus is looking toward the cross, the means by which He will save all of those who believe. And so Jesus Jesus knows even now at this point of His life what His purpose is. And here He's brought to overlook Jerusalem, the reminder of what's coming, what lie ahead for Him, and His purpose for coming to begin with. Luke chapter 9, verse 30, we have what we commonly call the transfiguration where Jesus' uh, where Jesus's glory is, is uh, unmasked and um, a couple of disciples are allowed to, to participate um, in this and be witnesses to this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. So Moses and Elijah actually speak of of Jesus' purpose and, and where he's going and what's getting ready to happen. And it says, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Here again we have the mention of Jerusalem is the place where Jesus' purpose is going to be fulfilled Look at chapter 13, verse 22. It's a transition verse here. Um, And it says, He went on His way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. 
Now again, this is uh, not just Luke telling you the location that Jesus is going to, but reminding you of the purpose that Jesus has. In fact, we see this in Luke 13.22. We see it again in verse 31. Um, There's a whole passage here that points to Jerusalem once again. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would... uh, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have Jesus lamenting over the people of Jerusalem which represent, remember John's gospel said that Jesus came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Jesus' heart is for the Jewish people. He, he loves His people. His heart breaks for them. And here, once again, we have Him looking to Jerusalem, the place where He will lay down His life for those who even reject Him. Look at verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 11. Another, another sort of transition verse here. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As you go through Luke's gospel, and when you pay attention to these little comments he drops about Jesus being on his way to Jerusalem, you kind of start to think, if it's only about location to location, you start to go, Luke, when is he ever going to get to Jerusalem? Like he's always moving toward Jerusalem, but he's never getting there. But when we understand what Luke is doing, pointing us to the cross and Jesus' purpose to lay his life down, it begins to make a whole lot more sense why he keeps saying that he's on his way to Jerusalem. Because the whole life of Christ was pointed to saving you and me and his, his, his people, those who would persecute him, those who would reject him, Look at chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Same thing that Moses and Elijah said, that this is the place where it would be accomplished. Chapter 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Luke is letting us know that the time is drawing very near now. Then look, verse 28, which we already read in chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Um, which, by the way, um, you can search the Scriptures and what you will always find is Jerusalem is always up. 
no matter where people are starting from, no matter where they're looking from, Jerusalem is always up. And this is not only because of the elevation of Jerusalem, but actually primarily because of what, what Jerusalem represents. And ultimately here, remember in John's Gospel, Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jerusalem is the very place where the Son of God is lifted up, that is, goes to the cross on behalf of all of us. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus accomplishes the work of saving us. And then again in verse 41 that we read when Jesus, or or we didn't read, but in verse 41 there, which is immediately following this triumphal entry passage, Um, that seems triumphal for everyone except Jesus at this point. Because look what follows. Verse 40, um, you know, we we have Jesus uh, telling the Pharisees, hey, I tell you, if if these were silent, the very stones would cry out as they're rebuking him to make all of his followers stop praising him. But look what, what comes next in Luke's gospel here. And when he drew near and saw the city, which we have another reference to Jerusalem, he wept over it. He weeps over his own people here and their rejection of him as the one that has come to save them. It's important for us to ask, especially as we see Luke always pointing us to Jerusalem and Jesus' determination when it says in 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 51 there, that we are, um, or in chapter 9, verse 51 that we, we read earlier, through 53 there, twice it's mentioned that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. Or other translations will say that he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Why was Jesus so determined to go to Jerusalem? This was not like a holy pilgrimage for him. This was something far different. It's because Jerusalem was the appointed place where he would become the last and perfect sacrifice for all of humanity. Look at John chapter 12, verse 27. John 12:27 Jesus says, "Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name." Then a voice came from heaven, "I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again." The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus realizes his purpose is the cross. Jesus has come to lay his life down for all of us. 
And he's willing to lay down his life. And Jesus makes it clear that there is no one who takes it from him. Sometimes we can kind of view Jesus as sort of a bit of a helpless uh, victim through the Passion Week. That as Jesus is brought before uh, a joke of a trial and accused of things that he, he, he has never done and then sentenced to death and then beaten and mocked and, and spit on and, and then forced to carry his cross and then hung on that cross, we can sometimes make, have this false idea that he was just sort of a, a victim who was just being unjustly treated and, a, and that God somehow used that to do something good. But that's not the case. Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 10 that he willingly laid down his life. No one took it from him. No one had the power to take it from him, but he laid it down willingly. Willingly for the Jews that mocked and hated him. Willingly for the Gentiles or non-Jews who beat and humiliated him. For everyone throughout all history, even today and tomorrow, Jesus willingly laid down His life for everyone who sinned and rebelled against God. Look at John chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus willingly laid down His life. But Jesus did not willingly lay down His life as one who just is begrudgingly obedient. Like this is just my burden to carry, and so I will, because it's just the right thing to do. That's not how Scripture presents Jesus' crucifixion. Not, not from Jesus' perspective. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also... Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, which speaks, when it says the founder and perfecter of our faith is speaking to the sacrifice of Christ at the cross. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
See, when Jesus was brought to this moment, Jesus was, Jesus was fully human. So we ought never take lightly the weight of, of the agony that he faced, the shame, the, the, the torment, the, and, the, and especially the, the, the weight of the wrath of God placed upon him. We, we should never have the idea that, like, sometimes we, we tend to do, like, well, you know, Jesus was God. Jesus was also fully human. For, for, for him to endure these things... He, he, he dove into the depths of, of what agony and shame are on our behalf. And Hebrews says that what propelled him to accept and endure the agony and shame of the cross was the joy of rescuing and redeeming you and I. The joy of giving us the hope of eternal life. The joy of giving us the gift of forgiveness of our sin. The joy of giving us fellowship with our Creator. He judged to be so far greater than the shame and the agony of the cross that it was uh, an easy decision, if you will, when those two things were compared. The agony and the suffering of the cross compared to the, the joy of bringing us back to the Father, our Creator. The decision was easy in that regard for Jesus Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. He set His face to Jerusalem because of the joy that lay past Jerusalem of rescuing you and I. Rescuing the very ones who would lay their hands upon Him to do Him harm. The very ones who would betray Him. The very ones who would conspire against Him to rescue them from sin, from the wrath of God. Consider this, that Jesus laid down His life to take upon Himself willingly His wrath against our sin. I want to ask you this question. Has the world offered you anything greater than the gift that Jesus Christ has offered to you today? Is there anything that the world or anything in it or anyone in it has offered to you that is greater than the forgiveness of your sin that is offered to you through the cross? Have you been offered anything greater than the gift that Jesus has offered you of eternal life? Is there, have, have you been offered anything greater than being restored to your Father in heaven who loves you so much that He would send His one and only Son to take upon Himself His wrath and judgment 
on your sin and mine. I hope that, it's my hope and prayer that you would agree with me that there's only one reasonable response to Jesus. And I think we see that response in John's Gospel in chapter 6. If you'd turn there with me. John 6.52 The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What Jesus is saying to to those who are listening is they're hung up on this idea of eating flesh and drinking blood, but what Jesus is saying is there is only one way here, and it's through the cross. That unless Jesus' body is given for them, unless His blood is spilled on their behalf, unless He becomes their perfect sacrifice, And unless they receive that by faith, which is what Jesus is talking about here, is is receiving the sacrifice of Christ by faith. Unless we eat that flesh and drink that blood, unless we fully embrace what Christ has done on the cross, there's no life in us. Because eternal life comes only through Him and through the sacrifice that He offers on the cross. And look how the disciples respond to this. When many of his disciples, verse 60, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now it's true that in this point in the Gospel, Peter didn't yet realize the significance of his words as is so often the case before Jesus' resurrection. But his words, nonetheless, stand true and I think represent our only reasonable response 
to Jesus Christ. And that is, where else are we going to go for eternal life? Where else are we going to go for forgiveness of our sin? Where else are we going to go to be restored to our Creator? There is no other place. And Peter says it in his confession. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The only way to heaven is through the cross. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Only He can save us. And only He has laid down His life in such a way that we would have salvation in Him. There's a day where Jesus is going to return and the foreshadowing of the triumphal entry um, will become a reality when Jesus returns. As the rightful King, triumphant King, over all creation, heaven and earth. And there will be a confession on the lips of everyone throughout all creation, throughout all of history. And that confession that crosses their lips will be that Jesus is Lord of all. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is a time coming when Jesus returns and every knee will bow to acknowledge Him as the rightful King over all. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord of all. Believer, believers, when believers make that confession, it will be from a heart overflowing with joy and worship and thankfulness. But when non-believers make that confession, it will be out of fear and terror and regret because they will recognize that on that very day as those words cross their lips, on the heels of that will be the judgment of God that comes on them. Hebrews says that it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. God has... God is appealing to us over and over throughout our lifetime to confess Him as Lord and Savior, to turn our hearts to Him and receive His sacrifice on the cross that we would receive forgiveness and eternal life. My question to you is, how will your confession be given on that day when Christ returns? Will it be given from a heart overflowing with joy to meet your Savior face to face? Will it be out of a heart that is overflowing with gratitude for what He has done for you? Or will it be with dread and terror at the coming judgment? What God has given us today 
And if you are a believer in Christ, if you've received him as Lord and Savior, then rejoice in that. Be thankful every moment of every day for the gift that he's given you and the price that he was willing to pay because the joy of saving you was far greater than the shame and agony of the cross. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, which is another way of saying Jesus set his face toward achieving whatever he had to go through to rescue you and I. We have an incredible Savior that won't quit. Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your Son, whom we love, because he's laid down his life for us. Thank you. Help us to walk worthy of this gift that you have given to us. Lord, let us never take for granted what our Lord did at the cross, what he endured on our behalf. Lord, we worship him today. We honor him for all that he has done. And we look forward to the day where we gather before him and together join our voices to confess him as Lord of all. And for those who have yet to come into your kingdom to surrender their life to you, Lord, to receive you by faith, Lord, we ask that you would turn their hearts to you this very day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all hail, Redeemer, hail. For thou hast died for me. Thy praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. Lord, bless and keep you and walk through this, these days with thankful hearts for what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. And with that confession on your lips that would help others to come to that saving knowledge of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, bless and keep you.